Hello and welcome to The Iron Dice. I'm your host, Dan Arrows, and you are listening to part three of our The Fight for the Republic series, recapturing the struggle for power in Weimar, Germany. A lot of stuff we'll talk about in this episode happens concurrently with the events of episode one and two, so if you aren't fully caught up, it shouldn't be a problem. We'll shift focus a bit away from the power center in Berlin and take a look at the events surrounding one of the most fateful days in modern German history. However, it's not just fatal for Germany, but the entire world. I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. We are determined that the vicious German cycle of war, only peace, shall once and for all time come to an end. This is London Court. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. Early this morning, the Soviet group Quote, no, 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 we must go right into the heart of Germany. The armistice should be signed there. The Germans will not admit that they are beaten. You do not finish wars like this. It is a fatal error and France will pay for it. General Jean Mangin, November 1918. The date is November 11th, 1918, five o'clock in the morning. In France, roughly 50 miles to the north of Paris, stands a thick, dark forest right next to a small village called Retende. On this fateful day, on a clearing in the middle of that forest, two train carts are standing parallel to one another. It's raining, water is pounding against the windows, and around the clearing, the leaves are falling from the trees. And this setting that signals the end of the First World War strangely calls back to its beginning in one sentence in particular. That sentence is, You will be home before the leaves fall, said by the German Kaiser to his departing troops, who would go on to perish in the trenches. Now, at this point in our story, it's four years later, the Kaiser has fled into exile in the Netherlands, Germany has suffered two and a half million deaths. A bit over 400,000 of those are civilians. France and Britain count roughly the same. For some of the smaller nations, it's even worse. Serbia, for instance, lost about 16% of its population. All these countries have dried up their wealth, and in places like Belgium and parts of France, Entire areas have been transformed into something that looks like the moon's surface. And this war 
ending inevitably brings up the question of why it didn't end sooner. Why did it have to come to this? As you can see with the Kaiser statement, many people bought into a short war illusion early on. This war was going to be over relatively quickly, and its result will finally calibrate the power imbalance of Europe. That, that was the idea. When it became apparent that this wasn't going to happen, theoretically speaking, you could just end the war, meet in some neutral country and come up with an agreement. The French get this province, Germany in return gets this colony, and so on. There had been a way to solve these conflicts of interest before the war. So why did the warring nations continue to throw millions of young men into the meat grinder? There are numerous reasons, and one is that all the great powers in this conflict obscure their real ambitions to their populations. And not just that, but deny that they have any agency in taking part in this conflict. Nearly everyone is pretending to be forced into the war in some form or another. Austria-Hungary is defending itself against constant Serbian aggression. Serbia is defending its independence. Russia is defending Serbia. Germany is defending itself from Russia, while France is fighting off Germany and Britain is defending Belgium. The German leadership tells its citizens that the enemy has conspired to wipe Germany off the map because they are envious of its success. The Allies present the Kaiser as a Hitlerian figure and Prussian militarism as incompatible with world peace. Germany committing numerous war crimes in Belgium only emboldens this narrative that is especially strong in Britain. And soon, Germany is a stand-in for the root of all military conflict in Europe. H.G. Wells, the famous writer, is one of the loudest proponents of this idea at the time, and he explicitly writes, every sword drawn against Germany is a sword drawn for peace. In the same text that is called The War to End All Wars, he says, that trampling, drilling foolery in the heart of Europe that has arrested civilization and darkened the hopes of mankind for 40 years, German imperialism, German militarism has struck its inevitable blow. The victory of Germany will mean the permanent enthronement of the war god over all human affairs. The defeat of Germany may open the way to disarmament and peace throughout the earth. To those who love peace, there can be no other hope in the present conflict than the defeat, the utter discrediting of the German legend, the ending for good and all of the blood and iron superstition of Krupp, flag-wagging Teutonic Kiplingism and all that criminal sham efficiency that centers in Berlin. Never was war so righteous as war against Germany now. Never has any state in the world so clamored for punishment. Reading this and understanding that people really thought this way and didn't just see this as a war for power between several imperialist nations shows why you couldn't just end the war in a handshake and call it quits. So, on top of the military stalemate that develops pretty quickly into the war, there's also a political stalemate. But after two years, nobody expects this war to be over soon. They all realize that they have maneuvered themselves into an all-or-nothing situation and prepare for the war to continue well above 1918. In November 1917, for instance, British Parliament discusses commissioning battlecruisers to be deployed for the conflict in 1920. Even the big events don't change this outlook a whole lot. 
The United States joining the Allies, for instance, that's an event where one might be tempted to say, well, now it has to be over soon. That is upset with a couple of other things, though. Russian Revolution being the biggest one, Britain is also getting close to bankruptcy because of the war's enormous cost, and in the French army, mutinies start to break out. So the military stalemate doesn't move that much until 1918, where the German army's leadership realizes that they have to do something. With each passing day, their numerical disadvantage grows, and if Germany wants to win, it has to strike a decisive blow soon. So the quartermaster of the German army, Erich Ludendorff, decides to cast the die one last time. He and his colleagues draw up the plans for a massive offensive, consisting of a couple of blows at strategic points on the Western Front. And Ludendorff knows that it's all or nothing now. When he is asked something like, you know, you're pouring our last reserves into this, what if the offensive fails? Ludendorff angrily responds with, then Germany has to perish. The first blow, called Operation Michael, strikes in March. Germany has well over a million men on the attack, and they take a ton of territory early on. But it's not enough to make the Allied armies collapse. The offensive bogs down, and Germany is unable to replenish its losses. From that point in the conflict, the initiative solely lies with the Allied armies, and as Germany's allies start to drop out one after the other, even the military realizes it's over. Now, you might ask, what has changed that an armistice should be possible now? The German army still stands on foreign soil, and... The Allies don't know for sure how exhausted their forces really are. That said, while Germany's current situation isn't hopeless, their future position is. So they grasp at their last straw, which is trying to get a peace through US President Woodrow Wilson. We talked about this correspondence in the first episode a bit already, and Germany's motivation boils down to trying to get a deal that maintains the status quo. They call this a Wilsonian peace. Woodrow Wilson has laid out this peace plan called the 14 points. And now that Germany's military prospects look bleak, they hope to get in on that deal. And they approach Wilson directly because in his 14 points or his speeches after, he never mentioned dismantling Germany, splitting it up into smaller states and stuff like that. In France and Britain, there definitely are voices in favor of that, and those forces dominating the negotiations might lead to a Clemenceau peace named after the French Prime Minister. Before Clemenceau was appointed, France was in a bit of a governmental crisis and the French president had to pick a prime minister who either was inclined to find a compromise with the Germans or one who wanted the exact opposite. Enter the tiger. Georges Clemenceau. Le Tigre, they call him. He doesn't look like one, though. In fact, his lack of hair and big white mustache make him seem more like a, like a wearus, maybe. But he is the personification of la guerre à l'outrance, war to the utmost. Earlier in his life, Clemenceau had been a populist left figure, but as soon as he comes to power in France, he subjugates everything to winning the war. Dissidents get thrown into prison, publications critical of him and the war are suppressed. 
This is a bit ironic because in 1914, when he was still a journalist, his own publication called The Free Man got suppressed by the government. A day later, he relaunched it under the name The Man in Chains. None of that matters to him anymore. And one of his quotes shows this attitude as prime minister perfectly. One day, when he gets questioned about his political goals, he responds, Home policy? I wage war. Foreign policy? I wage war. The closer we get to the end of the war, the more apparent it becomes that the Allies distrust each other almost as much as they distrust their enemies. Wilson and the French especially will clash with each other numerous times until a peace deal is reached because Wilson didn't check with the other allies when he proclaimed his 14 points as the way to end the war. In fact, Wilson coming up with this plan was in part a reaction to the Bolsheviks publishing the Allies' imperialist war aims, which was a big propaganda disaster for them. Of course, the German war aims are not in any way different, but nobody expects that anyway. Naturally, Britain and France get exceedingly nervous about things like point five of the 14 points, which aims at a free, open-minded and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable government whose title is to be determined. In addition to that, Wilson also speaks a lot about national self-determination to prevent future conflict. Every group of people should be allowed to be masters of their own fate. That is also the rationale for establishing a Polish state and carving up the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian Empire. But this also conflicts with what the French want, which is not just a return to the borders of 1871, but also 1814 annexing German territory. On October 29th, the Allies meet in Paris to discuss on what terms a future delegation should agree to an armistice with Germany. Present are George Clemenceau, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, and a guy called House, who is an advisor to Wilson. They basically agree to establish peace based on the 14 points, but with a few, let's say, clarifications. One such clarification is that the reshuffling of the colonial order only applies to the German colonies in Africa and Asia. One of the 14 points also calls for freedom of the seas, which the British obviously have a problem with. One bump they hit shortly before the end of the meeting is Germany paying for all damage caused to the Allied side's civilian population. The Americans are reluctant to agree to this because, in their eyes... This would require Germany having broke international law, something definitely true when it comes to Belgium, less true when it comes to France. Clemenceau and Lloyd George demand a couple of other things that the Americans don't want to budge on until House decides to put his foot down. He says that if it isn't possible to reach a peace based on the 14 points, this might force Wilson to explain what's preventing that from happening in front of Congress. Upon House saying this, Clemenceau and Lloyd George changed looks and in that moment probably realized that they have just been checkmated. Because if Wilson would get in front of Congress and explain that there can be no peace and Americans have to keep dying, 
because the French want this province and the Italians want this province, it would destroy the whole public narrative of making the world safe for democracy. And it would expose the conflict's imperialist nature and probably lead to the American public no longer wanting to continue the war. And make no mistake, without the Americans, the best the Allies can hope for was a compromise with Germany. That said, this would also look really bad for Wilson, and in these negotiations, France and Britain lock arms on multiple issues to push for more draconian conditions than the Americans want. On top of that, Wilson has a lot of pressure to end the war because the US's financial cost is now roughly four times of what they had anticipated. And as people in Britain, France and Germany get more and more war-weary, the American public is getting increasingly nationalistic and extremely xenophobic. 1918 is a midterm election year and Wilson fears this rise of nationalism will deliver the Republicans control of Congress. This might all sound very familiar, maybe. The compromise they agree on is, in return for the French and the British basically accepting the 14 points, the British get to decide the naval terms of the armistice, and the French get to determine the land terms. A lot of this conversation reads like a poker game, with each side bluffing and calling the other parties bluffs, Friends and Britain try to put pressure on the U.S. while also knowing that they need the U.S. more than the U.S. needs them. They want to see the conflict end as well now because every day it continues, the Americans' position becomes more and more dominant. In 1917, a British general openly says in Parliament that if the war continues for much longer, the Americans will dictate to the world. The final note the Americans sent to Berlin called the Lansing Note, after U.S. Secretary of State Robert Lansing, arrives on November 5th. It says, The Allied governments have given careful consideration to the correspondence which has passed between the President of the United States and the German government. Subject to the qualifications which follow, they declare their willingness to make peace with the government of Germany on the terms of peace laid down in the President's address to Congress of January 1918, and the principles of settlement enunciated in his subsequent addresses. A couple of qualifications follow, with the last one being absolutely key. It says, Further, in the conditions of peace laid down in his address to Congress of January 8, 1918, the President declared that invaded territories must be restored as well as evacuated and freed. By it they understand that compensation will be made by Germany for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allies and their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea, and from the air. This little passage will create a lot of trouble down the line when we get to the actual peace negotiations because both parties interpret it very differently. The Germans read the words aggression of Germany as them needing to pay reparations for the damage they have caused literally. Their shells their soldiers, their airplanes, and so on. According to the Allies, though, Germany accepting this phrasing in Lansing's note implies that they take responsibility for all the damage caused by the conflict and the conflict itself. You can sort of read it in two different ways. Be that as it may, the Germans don't really have much of a choice when they receive the note. They denied the 14 points in the spring, but since then their negotiating position has utterly collapsed. 
Between March and July, they lose roughly a million men. July to October, another million men. They have no way of replenishing those losses at this point. The Allies are gone from the scene, and despite all the theories you hear about this, about how, oh, Germany could have done this or maybe this to get an upper leg on the Allies, they are simply running out of men. The government checks with the military leadership of how much room to negotiate they have, and the answer they get is basically, it's going to be less and less with each passing day. The guy they put in charge of negotiating the armistice on Germany's behalf is a politician from the center party called Matthias Erzberger. He is a devout Catholic, somewhat liberal figure, and the center party is the electoral vehicle for the country's Catholics mostly. He is also an excellent speaker and known for being able to think on his feet in negotiations. Him and a couple of others make up the German delegation that is supposed to meet their counterpart on French soil. And you can just imagine the pressure on this guy's shoulders, trying to broker a peace that somewhat maintains the status quo while having next to zero leverage, but also not being sure how aware the enemy is of that fact. He is also pretty worn out by the turbulent developments inside Germany and, above all, his only son dying of the Spanish flu only a couple of weeks ago. Erzberger and the Germans, at this moment, put all their faith in Wilson being the dominant force within the Allies. The French permit the German delegation to cross the front line, which they do on November 5th. Shortly before crossing no man's land, they have to wait a bit so the pioneers can clear minefield they laid out to secure the Germans' retreat. A trumpeter joins the delegation who is supposed to signal their arrival and, with a big white flag strapped to the front of the car, the convoy crosses no man's land in the dark of the night. Although it's not an actual white flag because the Germans forgot to bring one, they snatch a big white tablecloth from one of the locals. Here is French General Vigan describing the Germans arriving. Night falls. The weather is appalling. Drizzle is falling without the rather dense fog dissipating. At 8 p.m., the guards finally perceive a glow of light. They hear a few notes from a trumpet, proclaiming, Hold your fire! A few seconds later, a column of vehicles roars up the road with their headlights switched on. Way at the front, on the first car, an enormous white flag gleams out of the dark night. Standing upright on the running board, a trumpeter blows constantly. A hand motion stops the car. A young 25-year-old captain steps forward. He is Captain Ullier, battalion commander of the 171st Infantry Regiment, who recognizes the parliamentarians and climbs into the first of the five cars. The journey continues to La Capelle. The trumpeter blows garde à vous, attention, while our troops now have this concluding image of four years of struggle and suffering before their eyes. The convoy continues until they reach a train station in a nearly completely destroyed French city called Ternier. And here's how Erzberger writes about this trip. This journey was even more harrowing for me than the one to the deathbed of my only son three weeks prior. Not a single house was standing anymore. One ruin followed the next. Their remains loomed ghost-like into the sky under the moonlight. At Tenier, they get told to board a train, a special one only they get to use. And throughout the night, they aren't allowed to open the curtains on the train because they aren't supposed to know where they are going. 
It finally stops on November 8th, 7 a.m. in a thick, dark forest. Erzberger notices that parallel to them another train is standing on the tracks, which turns out to be the Allied delegation's train. Shortly after, the Germans get informed that they will meet the other delegation at 10 a.m., so they don't have a lot of time to prepare. Erzberger will later write about the intense psychological pressure he felt at that moment, given that this is the first official meeting between the two countries in 52 months of war, with millions of dead people on each side. Between the two trains, the French put down a wooden plank for the Germans to cross, and as they approach the Allies' train shortly before 10 a.m., they are being observed by maybe the most important member of the French delegation. Here's how that person captures this moment in his memoirs. I glanced out the window. Four men were making their way across the wooden plank. I looked at them and thought to myself, so, this is the German Empire. It has fought and now pleads for peace. And since it's coming to me, I will treat it as the Empire deserves. I will be hard and cold, but without resentment and cruelty. The Germans enter the train cart and are seated by the present staff. And what follows now is one of the most fateful meetings in all of modern history. Because every gesture, every sentence has such an enormous amount of weight to it. One of the doors on the train opens and the Allied delegation enters the cart. And as Erzberger and the other Germans notice who they will be talking to, their heart sinks. They realize that the delegation they hope to be negotiating with, and that would be sympathetic to a piece based on Wilson's 14 points, doesn't even have any Americans on it. It consists of two British admirals, a French general named Vigan, and most importantly, the French Marshal Ferdinand Foch. This guy is probably the most critical figure in the room. Until this point, he has been commanding the French forces and, since spring, all Allied troops on the Western Front. He is also the most French-looking guy you'll ever see. Big white mustache and an expression that's, I guess, constantly judgmental would be the way to describe it. He is also the exact opposite of Wilson regarding what kind of peace he is interested in. In fact, Wilson will learn to hate this guy leading up to the Paris Peace Conference because to him, Foch is the personification of French revanchism. So you can imagine the atmosphere inside the train cart when this guy enters. Erzberger will later write about him that he was a small man with hard, energetic features which immediately betrayed a habit of commanding others. Foch is also the first to break the silence and ask, in French, of course, with whom do I have the honor of speaking? With the representatives of the German government, Erzberger responds. What is the purpose of your visit? To receive the Allied proposal to bring about a ceasefire. And Foch's ice-cold response is, I don't have anything to propose. This dumbfounds Erzberger and colleagues, which causes a short, awkward silence. But Foch has a specific goal in acting this way. He wants them to say the words, say why you are really here and don't pretend this is a negotiation. Another German delegation member chimes in and says, if the general prefers, 
We would like to inquire about the conditions under which the Allies would agree to a ceasefire. So you see, every single word in this conversation carries meaning. But Foch won't budge and says, I don't have any conditions to make. At this point, Erzberger is a bit tired of this game and pulls out Lansing's note and starts to read about how Foch has been authorized to inform the Germans of the conditions for bringing about a truce. But Foch interrupts him. Are you asking for a truce then? If you ask for it, I can tell you the conditions under which it can be granted. The Germans answer in the affirmative and Foch lets Vigon read the conditions but not without clarifying that there will be negotiating over these points. Germany can accept or deny them. There is no third option, he says. Foch insisting on the Germans asking for a truce is supposed to convey who runs the show here. This is not a negotiation between equals, but the German Empire's submission to the French and their allies. Erzberger and his colleagues are quite disillusioned at this point and Foch outright shatters their hopes of exploiting tensions between the Allies to get mild terms for the armistice. The terms they actually get are pretty harsh. Within two weeks, the German forces have to leave any occupied territory, including Alsace-Lorraine, and pull back behind the Rhine River. To the river's right, the Allies must be allowed to establish bridgeheads and the zone is to be demilitarized. Within these two weeks, they also have to hand over 150,000 train carts, 5,000 locomotives, and 10,000 trucks. Allied prisoners of war are to be released immediately, with the reverse not being the case. This short time window also forces the army to leave behind most of their heavy equipment, which de facto disarms the military in terms of artillery and such. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and the Treaty of Bucharest, made after Germany's victory over Russia and Romania, was to be immediately revoked. And they also have to hand over large amounts of weaponry and surrender the high seas fleet. These are far from being the only demands. For a mere truce, these terms are pretty extensive and Erzberger is just stunned by this. Just a couple of months prior, demands like this would have seemed outrageous and unacceptable. But now he really doesn't have a choice anymore. But don't think for a second that if the shoe were on the other foot, the Germans would act any more merciful. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk they made with the Russians is the perfect showcase of this. Because when the Russians tried to nibble around the edges of the conditions, a German general slammed his fist on a table and told them not to forget who won this war and who lost it. The first meeting between the Allies and the Germans only lasts 45 minutes and immediately after, Erzberger tries to contact the government in Berlin and the military high command in Spa. If you listened to our last episode, you're well aware that right this second, the revolution is raging across Germany, so... Everything is very chaotic, and while Foch denies any kind of negotiation in the meantime, he agrees to a couple of um, explanatory discussions, they call it. They are also given a very tight deadline to accept or reject the conditions for the truce. So while Erzberger is waiting for a response from his government, other members of the delegations meet. The Germans want to get a few points in, but they get shut down every step of the way. Even the appeals to the risk of Bolshevism taking over doesn't move the Allies much. 
When Erzberger reaches Spa and delivers the conditions to Hindenburg, he flips out and requests Erzberger to get some concessions from the Allies. But crucially, if he can't do that, he should still sign the armistice, but only under, quote, flaming protests with reference to Wilson. The government in Berlin, which consists of the Social Democrats at this point, trusts Hindenburg's judgment of the military state of things and to sign the armistice even without any concessions by the Allies. While some of these minor talks are happening, Foch meets with French Prime Minister Clemenceau to talk about if this is really the way to go. Should we let the Germans off the hook, so to say, and not insist on signing a truce in an occupied Germany? They are both of the same mind that says you fight a war for its results. If you get what you want, why sacrifice more French soldiers? Foch is also surprised about how utterly broken the Germans seem and expected much more resistance to the conditions. But what are they supposed to do? They can say no. But, of course, Foch doesn't know this for certain. One day later, Foch sits back at the negotiating table with the Germans. And despite contrary instructions, he does give them a few concessions. Among other things, he reduces the number of trucks, guns, and airplanes the Germans have to hand over. He also extends the time window they have to pull their troops back. On one crucial point, the Allies don't budge, though. And this is probably the most impactful one. Despite multiple pleas and Erzberger trying to explain the suffering this causes, they won't budge on lifting the naval blockade. Germany has been suffering from a lack of food and medicine throughout the war, exacerbated by this blockade. And now the Allies see it as the only mechanism they have to keep the pressure up, to force Germany into good behavior and suffocate any delays in implementing the terms of the armistice. Historian Ralph Reiko writes about this blockade in his book World War I, The Turning Point. The hunger blockade continued and was even expanded as the Allies gained control of the German Baltic coast and banned even fishing boats. The point was reached where General Herbert Plummer, commander of the British Army of Occupation, demanded of London that food be sent to the famished Germans. His troops could no longer stand the sight of hordes of skinny and bloated children pawning over the offal from British cantonments. Still food was not allowed to enter Germany until March 1919, and the blockade of raw materials continued until the Germans signed the treaty. Apart from impacting the growth of children and all the other side effects of malnutrition, estimates of how many people died during the blockade's extension come in roughly at 100,000. Hearing about the impact of this blockade, the initial reaction tends to be outrage. You know, how could civilized nations do this to each other, even if it was a hundred years ago, that sort of stuff. Worth keeping in mind, though, is that today you would just call this sanctions. If you look up the sanctions put on Iraq in the early 90s up until the invasion, it paints a similar picture. Anyway, the US and other allied nations eventually alleviated the lack of food in Germany with a massive food program. It remained a scar in the minds of many, though. 
After three hours of negotiating and the Germans checking with their government multiple times if they should accept this term or that phrasing, the Germans are ready to sign the armistice. But before they do so, Matthias Erzberger gets up in his chair, takes a deep breath and says this. I have to insist once more in emphasizing that the implementation of this agreement must plunge the German people into anarchy and famine. After the publications that initiated this armistice, conditions had to be expected which, with full military security for our opponents, would have ended the torments of those uninvolved in the war, women and children. The German people, who held out against a world of enemies for 50 months, will maintain their freedom and unity. A people of 70 million might suffer, but it will never die. Foch, utterly unimpressed by this, merely responds with très bien, very good, which is his way of saying, okay, thanks, no one cares. At roughly five in the morning, both parties sign the armistice, and on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the guns fall silent, at least for now. The German delegation has been utterly disillusioned that they had any chance to negotiate and what this really boils down to is a German capitulation that merely carries the name of an armistice. Reactions to the ceasefire in Germany are somewhat mixed, but generally the relief about the end of the war makes way to a vast majority of Germans feeling a lot of anger about what they see as the Allies' vengefulness. Alfred Döblin, who would go on to become a famous German writer, captures this moment like this. How low we have fallen, and everyone rejoices, drags away, robs, thinks of his possessions. We have been beaten to the ground overnight in the most epic fashion. One day, after the armistice comes into effect, Hindenburg releases a memo to the army, framing this armistice from military leadership's viewpoint. And you might have wondered why he didn't join the negotiations. Well, because he didn't want to. The top priority of the military is to distance themselves from this defeat as much as possible. Going as far as to not even admit the army actually lost. Here's what Hindenburg's memo says. The armistice has been signed. Right up until the present day, we have held our weapons in honor. With faithful devotion and in fulfilling our duty, the army has achieved something tremendous. In victorious attack and tenacious defense, we kept the enemy away from our border and spared our homeland the terrors and devastation of war. With the growing number of adversaries, the collapse of our allies, and the ever more pressing worries about food supply and the economy, our government saw itself forced to agree to harsh terms. But we shall emerge proudly and with our heads held high from this struggle against a world of enemies. So, as you can see, Hindenburg consciously removes any agency he or the army might have had in this. The government saw itself forced to agree to harsh terms, not mentioning that they only did this because Hindenburg told them to. While it's not as present yet because the Germans still hope for a lenient peace deal dominated by Wilson because 
this was only the armistice. The definitive peace deal is still down the road. Still, the government ending this war, with the army still standing on foreign soil, makes it feel somewhat phony to many people. Why agree to these harsh terms? Things aren't looking so bad. We, we aren't even occupied yet. The military will do its best to feed the flame of this, claiming Germany only had to do this because of the revolution and the country's defeatist attitude. Absolute nonsense, of course, but the average person didn't fully grasp the military situation, so it's a way to save face in this. We didn't lose. Our government sold us out. The German army stands undefeated. That sort of thinking. It's hard to describe how much this myth weakens the Weimar Republic right from the beginning. The truce and the subsequent peace deal will become a huge source of resentment and humiliation. It's like this wound dealt to German society during the war, culminating in the submission to the Allies, just keeps getting worse and worse throughout the years. For the French, this moment does the exact opposite. It represents their triumph and righting the wrong that they felt had been done to them after the Franco-Prussian War. At the center of the clearing, the French install a large granite block with the following inscription. Here, on the 11th of November 1918, succumbed the criminal pride of the German Empire, vanquished by the free peoples which it tried to enslave. They also put up a second monument, showing a big sword impaling the German eagle, dedicated to Alsace-Lorraine's recapture. The meaning of the armistice, for the German right especially, is probably best demonstrated by what happened 22 years after. After the French army's swift defeat by the Nazis, the eye of history once again looks at this clearing in the forest next to Retente. An American correspondent, who would go on to write The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, was present when Hitler himself arrived at the clearing and writes this. Through my glasses, I saw the Führer stop, glance at the Alsace-Lorraine monument, then he read the inscription on the great granite block in the center of the clearing. I look for the expression on Hitler's face. I am but 50 yards from him and see him through my glasses, as though he were directly in front of me. I have seen that face many times at the great moments of his life, but today it is a fire with scorn, anger, hate, revenge, triumph. He steps off the monument and contrives to make even this gesture a masterpiece of contempt. He glances back at it, contemptuous, angry. Suddenly, as though his face were not giving quite complete expression to his feelings, he throws his whole body into harmony with his mood. He swiftly snaps his hands on his hips, arches his shoulders, plants his feet wide apart. It is a magnificent gesture of defiance, of burning contempt. You can guess three times where the French delegation gets taken by the Germans when France is the one pleading for a truce this time. As the delegation gets out of their car on June 22nd, 1940, they are faced with quite a sight. The Germans have reinstalled the train tracks that had been removed prior. A giant Nazi flag towers over the granite block at the center of the clearing. They also have relocated Forst's train cart, removed it from the museum it had been in, 
and put it on the exact spot on which it stood in 1918. While the Allies had kept the armistice negotiations in 1918 secret as to not further humiliate the Germans, the clearing is full of international press this time. The entire world shall witness the defeated French pleading for peace. A German marching band is playing, and you can imagine the thoughts rushing through the heads of the French delegation. Eyewitnesses reported that the French general leading the delegation hesitated to put a foot on the train cart's pedestal because he knew what was about to happen. As the delegation enters the train cart, they spot Hitler himself sitting on the exact spot Foch sat prior. The French delegation is forced to sit where Erzberger and Collis were seated, and after an initial greeting, Hitler leaves. As soon as the armistice is signed, Hitler orders the two present monuments to be destroyed and the clearing to be burned to the ground. There's a bit of a happy ending to the history of the clearing, though. After the war, it was rebuilt, and precisely 100 years from 1918, French President Macron and the German Chancellor Angela Merkel met there as a signal of the Franco-German friendship. Both of them avoided sitting where Foch or Hitler had sat, by the way. Uh, they took the seats at the end of the table. Our story, the story of the beginning of the Weimar Republic, is far removed from any kind of happy end, though. The armistice will enrage and mobilize the ultra-nationalist right, and the peace from which the republic emerges will remain an anchor around its neck. And to tell you how much rage would stay connected to those fateful days in November, I'll tell you one last story in this episode. The date is August 26, 1921. It is a lovely Sunday in Bad Griesbach, which is in Bavaria. Matthias Erzberger is on vacation there, accompanied by his wife and 70-year-old daughter. Early in the day, he decides to hike up a local mountain together with a friend, and while they are on their way back, they encounter two men standing in their way. The weather has since changed, it's raining, the track is getting slippier, when suddenly the two figures pull out their pistols and fire at Erzberger and his friend. Both get hit, Erzberger, badly wounded, lunges down a slope, hoping to escape the assassins. And here again, this expression of deep-seated hatred that Erzberger happens to be the target of because he did what the military told him to three years prior. One of the assassins climbs down the slope and finds Erzberger lying in the dirt, covered in blood. To make sure his mission succeeds, the killer puts his revolver on Erzberger's forehead and blows his brains out. What this moment shows is that there might be instances where things are looking up for our protagonists. The monarchy is ousted, peace is made, and so on. But the one constant you can be certain of in our story remains, the worst is yet to come. Thank you for listening, folks. As always, you can catch me and the podcast on social media. Links for that in the show notes. And if you can't get enough Iron Dice, 
we have now started doing bonus episodes, talking about current political stuff and, of course, history. You can unlock those at patreon.com slash danarrows. Stay safe out there, and I hope to see you the next time. Until then, have a good one. We are determined that the vicious German cycle of war, pony peace, shall once and for all time come to an end. This is London Court. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. Power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. Tonight, I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Not ours have seen the. Say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. Over a million people here celebrating a day that they never thought would come. A day in which Germany became one country again. Launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. If the Iron Dice must roll, may God help us. <laughs>